Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you again. So this week, what we're doing is we're finishing our series on the Gospel of Luke, um, which is called Fulfilled. And every year at Revolution, we teach through um, one of the Jesus books, right? There are six, if you want to get like weird about it, I suppose. As, as I do, I tend to like to get weird about it. We have four Gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we have the book of Acts, where Jesus is a prominent character, and then also the book of Hebrews, which is cheating a little bit, but I think it works. Um, anyways, so this is, uh, every we teach through one of those books, and we break it into two halves. And so we talked about the first half of the Gospel of Luke at the beginning of our year, and now we're at the back of the year, we're talking about the second half of the Gospel of Luke. And there's something tricky about Luke's Gospel we haven't talked about yet, um, and it's high time we do. And it's that even after now 11 sermons and 24 chapters, looking at the Gospel of Luke, the reality is that we are only about halfway. Only about halfway. Here's, um, here's what I'm referring to. So one of the most significant parts, I think, about the Bible that we have, the Bible that you and I have, is that this book, this book um, that we are finishing today and is attributed to the author Luke, is in fact only half of the book that Luke wrote. We call What we call Luke is just this first section, which is all about Jesus' initial ministry in and around Judea. Um, it includes his, his birth, it includes his, his ministry in Judea, and then his death and his resurrection. But what the author actually wrote, what Luke actually wrote, is a single longer text that we call Luke Acts. So I said six and was cheating, and you thought I meant because of Hebrews, but no, I'm cheating because Acts is technically part of the same story. And the book of Acts includes some important stuff. It includes the founding of the church in Jerusalem in the first half. And then the second half of that book, it talks about the conversion of Paul and then his initial ministry trips um, that lead to the spreading of the church all around the Mediterranean world. Now, um, I was trying to think of a way to like explain what's going on. And it reminded me of like this weird trend in movie franchises, like in the 2010s. Do you remember? I think Harry Potter started it. You remember they, took, they kept taking the last movies of things and then like splitting them into two parts for money? I'm not sure. But anyways, this is about like that. I don't think it happened for money in the case of the Bible, but nonetheless, I think it's like that. So Luke is like the part one, and then the book of Acts, which comes two books later in your Bible, is actually part two. So the riddle that we need to unpack, we're going to finish out this book well, is what is happening there, right? Why is Luke's, Luke split, and then why is it split with a book in between in your Bible so you can't just, like, roll from part one into part two? And the reality is, as much as, like, there was a draft of the sermon, there's like, a thousand words explaining the long history of this, and I'm like, I don't think you care that much. So let me do the short version. And the short version has to do with how strange the Gospel of John is. So John is the book that sits in between Luke and Acts in your Bible, and John is weird. And we'll get there, maybe next year, I don't know. I haven't picked the gospel we'll do next year. Maybe we'll talk about how weird John is. But the thing is, is that many centuries ago, there were these competing desires in the church's history. One was to try and keep the life of Jesus stories together. So these four gospels. And the helpful result of the desire to keep these books together is that I think if, we, if you read through the New Testament, you have an easier time seeing what the Gospels really are as, as works. There are four unique perspectives on the work that happens on the cross when Jesus is crucified. So we have four authors, four perspectives on the work of the cross. And this is the beginning of the sermon, so you're still willing to learn stuff. So we're going to do a little learning. 
So we're going to walk through these. Mark, which is the first gospel we believe to have been written. There's good evidence for that. Again, 500 words that I've cut out talking about that. Mark is the first gospel written that's addressed to early Christians who are in the middle of persecution. And it is about the mystery of the cross. What God is doing is, is going to take us to places that we don't understand, which is an important message for people facing persecution. But even when you are in a place you don't understand, God is still in control. That's Mark. Matthew, by contrast, is likely the second gospel written, and it's written to a different group of Christians who are at risk of growing content in their theology. <laughs> and so it is about the scandal of the cross. God's love led him to choose humiliation on his way to victory. So don't become arrogant in how you understand this faith. Because the God of the universe chose a scandalous path to get where he wanted to go. So stay humble. John's gospel, we have no idea when it's written. Maybe first, maybe last. Nobody knows. And it's an enigma. It's told with significant differences from those other three gospels. The story unfolds differently. Things happen in different orders. There's a different timeline. So long ago, there was a decision made that it needed to be separated out from the other three and kind of on its own to keep people from being confused. It also emerges from an entirely different sect of the early church. So it's focused on a different set of things about Jesus. And specifically, John's gospel deals with the miracle of the cross. That's how he talks about it. It's this great miracle. And he points out that God's perfect love for all of us looks just like this. It looks like God dying on a cross. And that if that's true, if that's what a miracle is, then that turns the whole world and our understanding of it upside down. And so John gets separated out, and then we get to the Gospel of Luke, which is more than likely the last of the books written. And it's presented third, and it focuses on the purpose of the cross. And the purpose of the cross, we talked about all year, is to bring fulfillment and to bring into being God's plan for restoring all creation. So, all four of these perspectives end up being important. Mystery, scandal, miracle, purpose, and putting them all together has long been this key part of how the church wants to help Christians capture the beautiful diversity of God's love for us. No one of these stories can capture it all. But as much as keeping all the Gospels together so that we can get this like fourfold view of who Jesus is and what happens at the cross, as helpful as that project was, the somewhat harmful result of how these books have been organized, particularly by moving Acts out away from Luke, is that we risk forgetting something that's incredibly important here. And that is that the church is a living part of the gospel story. It's not an afterthought. It's part of the same story. Now, according to our faith, the cross is this pivotal moment, the pivotal moment in all of human history. The cross is the instant when God reaches down to the very bottom of human experience, to the very depths of like what sin has done, to, the, to death itself, right? He reaches down to the bottom of human experience and he wraps his arms around his people and he brings us back to earth, brings us back to life. That's what happens on the cross. But the cross... Like, forgive me, bear with me if this sounds scandalous to you. But the cross isn't the climax of God's story. God's kingdom is the climax of God's story. Fulfillment 
is guaranteed by Jesus. But it happens when all of this world and every person in it is restored to a real trusting relationship with God. That's the climax of the story. So Luke's gospel, even though we can see why maybe it was separated out into these two books, Luke's big book is the place in the Bible where we see this profound truth proclaimed. And so we miss that when we break it out. So what we're going to do today as we wrap all this up is we're going to look at the bridge between the two halves. We're going to look at the bridge that Luke builds between the cross and the church. And we find that bridge in chapter 24. We're going to kind of like work through that. Now at the beginning of chapter 24, what happens is Jesus is risen from the dead and we read about these women who go to the tomb where Jesus was buried and they find the tomb empty. And when they see the empty tomb, they meet these two angelic beings who remind them, helpfully, that Jesus told them all of this was going to happen before and they had forgotten. His death, his resurrection, all that stuff has been foretold and now, of course, keeping with our theme, it has been fulfilled, right? Now, terrified and amazed, these women go back to the place where the other disciples are hiding, and they tell them everything that happened, and we get, oh, like this lovely little passage. <laughs> I just feel like, it feels great to read, where it says, but these words seem to them an idle tale. I love it. I love that. Like, it'd be so easy, especially if Luke's gospel is written last. There's plenty of time that's gone by for us to fix that so it doesn't look so bad for the disciples. They could be like, the women came back and told them, and they rejoiced because Jesus was risen from the dead. No. The words seemed like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Still, Peter got up, and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, then he went home, amazed at what happened. And I think there are two things to note here that we should look at. First is... Going back to the thing I was just joking about, right? The disciples still don't understand. This has been a theme in all four of the Gospels. And we, I think the reason it keeps getting included is to be an encouragement to all of us, right? Like, it is okay not to understand. The cross has worked this big miracle, but there is nothing new about people struggling to trust that miracle, right? Right from the start, we see that there is still this gap. Even after what Jesus has done, there's still this gap that needs to be filled in the story. And what God has done must be believed by people before we can really get to where this is all going. Climax is a restored kingdom. You can't get to the restored kingdom just by doing the miracle. People have to believe the miracle, right? So people have an active part to play. The second thing that I think we can note in this little passage is that the journey to getting there, to trusting that story, isn't something that can just happen in your head, right? Everybody in that room hears the story, but Peter's the only guy that gets up and goes to investigate the story. So the story of this church that, that Luke wants to tell isn't a story that begins with a bunch of people just being blindly obedient, right? What it begins with is this insatiable, active curiosity on the part of first the women and then Peter. Now, I think generally a church like Revolution, we like, we vibe, right? We vibe with the point that it's okay to be skeptical about stuff and that we should be active seekers of truth. We talked about that for 13 years in this church. 
and we're a generation of skeptics, and we're always wary of overconfident people. So even that stuff I was saying about Matthew earlier, I saw some of you being like, yeah, that's right. Stay humble. Like, that's our vibe. But here's the thing. Asking questions without actually getting up to go investigate the answers to those questions isn't the goal of things either. The church story begins with somebody getting up and going to look. So, what happens next? Well, actually, there's like a weird little little coat, like insertion that we're going to read through. Peter actually comes back at the end of 24, but we just like bounce right off. And he goes and looks at the tomb, and then we cut over to this long, beautiful story, which is the focus of our time today. It goes like this. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them answered him, are you, I feel like, again, plenty of years have gone by to fix this and make it not sound so bad. But like, here it is. So one of them says, says, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And Jesus asked them, what things? And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then, and this is Jesus speaking, He says to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on, But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. We only get this story here in Luke's Gospel. And it's long, and I love it. It's one of my very favorites. So what can we learn here? To start with, I think there are three things, because this is a sermon, so there's three things. It's in the handbook that we get, and we take on this job, got three things. I had some some secret things earlier that I snuck in for you, but this is the the meat. All right, so to start with, what we learn is that Jesus isn't just risen, that Jesus is still here. It's the only thing that mattered to God was the atonement for sin and the defeat of death, then the cross 
and the empty tomb would be the end of Jesus' work, wouldn't it? But what matters most to God, it would seem, isn't the metaphysical particulars of salvation. What matters most to God, it would seem, is people. It's us. So even though all the miracle stuff has been done, it would seem that Jesus' job is not. Because what Jesus wants is for us to actually understand and believe. He is patient with us as we journey towards belief. We get a literal story here about Jesus' patience with us as we journey physically to a place and learn to believe along the way there. And that's true on this road, and it's still true. Do you, you want to know one verse from the crucifixion story that shows up in those other Gospels but is missing from the Gospel of Luke? Jesus doesn't say, it is finished on the cross. Why does Luke omit Jesus' last words? I would contend he omits them because Luke doesn't think things are finished at all. Because the fulfillment of Scripture, all that stuff that Jesus is here to bring into being, is still happening. So one of my one of my deepest wishes for the Bible is that Luke would actually fill in some of the gaps in the story. Maybe you had that same reaction, like Jesus himself unfolds the mystery of all scripture and we didn't include it. Like that would have been cool. I'd love to hear it. But I spent some time this week trying to figure like, like, okay, I know I'm annoyed, but why? Why isn't he here? I don't have any good answers, but perhaps one reason that it's not written down here is, well, because the book of Acts is about to start. We forget that because of that gap. But the book of Acts is the living testament to what is being said on the road to Emmaus. Jesus intends for his witness, for this witness to who God is and what God is up to, to pass through him and to his church. It's not static or passive information that you can just record in a couple paragraphs in the gospel. It's a way of living that's grounded in belief and in relationships that's meant to be contagious to the world. It's the groundwork, in other words, for this whole kingdom thing that fulfillment is aiming towards. So that's one thing. The last thing, I guess there's two things. I got off on my count. The last thing to note here. And the thing that I love most of all in the story is this. I shouldn't have just cracked a joke because this is serious. It's that the disciples preach a story they're still actively learning. They preach a story they're still learning. When they meet Jesus, he asks them what's on their minds, and then they tell him an unavoidably incomplete story. They tell him a story about a friend of theirs who was betrayed, a friend they thought was the Messiah but apparently wasn't, and now whose body has gone missing. From their current perspective, right, the story they're telling, this gospel story, is a story of failure. But what does Jesus, the living Jesus, do? What he does on this road is he fills in the gaps and he transforms that story of failure into a story of fulfillment. And I think a thing we can take from this is that it is so okay not to know everything yet, right? It is so okay that the gospel is still a mystery or maybe a scandal or maybe a miracle to you that you can see but one that you don't feel like you can trust yet. I think what we learn from the story is to just say what you've seen. Say what you've seen. 
Give words to your current feelings about Jesus and about God. And don't do that work of giving words to where you're at now. Don't do that work in isolation, right? Walk with a friend. And even more than that, like take a walk with a Jesus that you might not even recognize yet. Now, that's a strange thing to say, maybe. So I'm going to put it a little differently. One of the things that happens over and over again with folks that I talk to in this job is that people will tell me things, right? They will be open and vulnerable, vulnerable with me about important stuff in their life that they are still afraid to talk to God about. It might be another pastor. This happened just this past week who's wondering if they want to give up this job, if they want to keep doing this job or if they want to quit. And they will tell me, they'll tell me, just a regular old dude that they know, I feel so drained, I feel so hopeless, I want to give up. But as we talk, they will admit to me that they have not yet prayed those words. In fact, that they're afraid to pray those words. Now why? I think it's because to them, right, asking God about something important in your life is kind of like hitting the submit button on a test question. Like there's, no, there's no turning back. And they're afraid that like, if I do that, if I like hit submit, then like God is going to spit out a judgment back to me about whether the thing I'm feeling and wrestling with is right or wrong. I'm going to get like a yes or no out of him. And I think when people are telling me stuff they won't talk to God about yet, what's really going on is like they have a deep suspicion they're wrong. And that's holding them back. And I've seen people and talked to people in this position who are in a marital crisis. They'll tell me stuff, but they, are, they won't pray. I've seen this with folks choosing a church. I've even seen this with folks who are wondering whether they should or shouldn't go to a wedding of a friend or a sibling who's gay. And they'll like, ask me, they'll get my opinion. And it's like they're just trying to like get somebody to check their homework before they turn it in. Now, my question is, does that sound like the disciples on the road to Emmaus? That holding back, that hesitation to tell something you're not sure about. Does the God that you're afraid of, the God of like the submit button, is that God, does that sound like the Jesus that the disciples meet on that road? I think God wants us to believe and to trust his love for us. I think if there's anything we know about him, it's that that's what he wants. He tells us in a whole Bible over and over again, I want you to trust my love for you. And that love is made perfect and relational and tangible to us in Jesus. And Jesus just wants to hear where you actually are. Even if you don't have all the answers yet, even if you're pretty sure you have some of the wrong answers currently, you can trust him to listen and to love, and to illuminate where this road that you are on is going. You ought to be able to trust him a lot more than you trust me. I don't know what I'm talking about most of the time. <laughs> but you can trust him because ultimately the goal of this whole thing isn't getting right answers. The goal is a restored relationship. Now, I want to be clear with you. That doesn't mean that if you open something very important and fearful in your life up to God, it doesn't mean that he's always going to tell you the thing that you want to hear. 
It doesn't mean that you're not going to be challenged, right? What does he tell the disciples after they, they fess up to him on the road to, the, to Emmaus? They say, he says, oh, how foolish you are. Which again, you don't need to record this. You could change the story to sound a little nicer, but they don't. They keep this in. Jesus scolds them. But even in that, he wants to help them. And even in the witness we find in these verses, right? There's so much love in that coming conversation with Jesus that even these two men that he scolds at the beginning of the combo, at the end of the road, like all they want is for him to stay with them just a little bit longer. If we read on in Luke 24, we hear how these very same disciples go back to their friends with this new Jesus story to tell. And then Peter shows up again, right? Because when they get back to talk to their buddies, they learn that Peter has a new story too. In Luke 24, 34, we read this. They tell them about Jesus on the road, and then they tell these two disciples, the Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Now, we didn't see that before. This is a story we don't get. But I would contend it's probably worth putting a pen in it and say, like, that curiosity of Peter has been rewarded, right? Like, getting up, going to sea has been honored. Just a little side note. Nothing to do with the sermon. Just put a pen in it for you. But that news about Simon seeing Jesus is barely out of the disciples' mouth when Luke writes this. He writes that suddenly Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And they were like, this is where Luke is clever, right? He knows what you're thinking, which is like, this appearing, disappearing thing is, is, is not good. So they're startled and terrified, and they thought that they were seeing a ghost, as you might be thinking as you read. But Jesus says to them, why are you frightened, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, Yet for all their joy, they were still disbelieving and wondering. And he said to them, have you anything to eat? This is like the final ghost check. <laughs> Offer to feed it. They, so they gave them a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things, and see, I am sending you, I am sending upon you what my Father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So Jesus is here. That's the thing we need to see here. Jesus is really actually here. You can touch him. You can feed him. That's what Luke wants us to see more than anything else. He wants us to see that this bridge that he wants us to understand between the cross and the church, that bridge isn't a gospel. It's not a story. It's not even this room of disciples and apostles. The bridge is the living, still living Jesus. But Luke also wants to see that this isn't the same Jesus that the disciples witnessed before. This is a Jesus that can do crazy stuff. He can appear at will. And he's not as cryptic in the ways that he used to be when people ask him questions, right? Now all of a sudden, this Jesus is full of answers for them. He's a Jesus that's obviously full of power. He's full of food, which we've established. And that's to say that this Jesus is present, is actually fully manifest and present. And I think one of the biggest and the most costly 
misconceptions in Christian faith is that after the resurrection, after Jesus resurrects, he's going like, to ascend up into heaven. And like the way we're supposed to think about that is that Jesus, who's like the, our star player on the team, has like come out of the game. And he's like sitting over on the bench while the rest of us, like the people of his church, struggle through the second half of the game and like try to like seal the victory. He's like spotted us a hundred point lead, you know, and we're trying to like hold on until he clocks back in again. And inevitably, like we're gonna lose, we're gonna blow the lead, and then at like the butt, like 10 seconds left in the game, Jesus is gonna clock back in and he's gonna like win things for us. And I don't know if you've ever been taught that in the version that I just taught it to you, but like I absolutely grew up being taught this about Jesus and about the world. That like he is gone and we will see him again on judgment day and he's gonna swoop in and like swing the sword and bring the victory that we almost squandered. But that is not how Luke wants us to see this story. It's why Luke writes another half to the story. Because the witness of Luke is that Jesus is actually still here in the game with you. In fact, the Jesus that's here is like a leveled up Jesus. He's here in all of his glory. He can do anything. And the trouble is that we still think that the leveled up Jesus is like that it's his intention to take all of the shots. We think that the game plan is one where we just like sit back and watch. But it isn't. The game plan is to restore relationships for everyone, everywhere, in the whole world. The victory is God's kingdom here on earth. You and I are a part of that kingdom. And if our hope in Jesus is really restored, if our souls have really been laid bare to him, if our trust is finally firm in the way of life that God has made for us, then we have so much work to do. God's story is fulfilled when the earth is overflowing with love and with justice and with wonder, when repentance flows out of joy instead of like being something we do when we're afraid, when generosity is something that pours out of like a natural sense of compassion we feel for others rather than something that we do because we have to, when God's people discover that we are all missionaries, right? Not just some of us, but all of us are missionaries right in the places that we are. And when we are able to read the Gospels and able to understand that we don't need to envy the disciples' nearness to Jesus because Jesus is equally near to us now. We can just simply be disciples. And disciples, not of a Jesus who's still mysterious, but of a Jesus who has already won, who is already fully revealed, and who's willing to be perfectly intimate to all of us. The church isn't a building, we know that. It's not even a congregation. The church is supposed to be a global, growing community of kingdom people who are learning to be loved by and then to love others like their God. And what we are all invited to do when we read Luke or any of these other things, just live our life in this faith, what we are invited to do is to choose that, to surrender to that, not out of a fear of what will happen to us, 
but really purely out of wonder. Because the story is still being told, and the Jesus who is central to it is right here, still patiently inviting you and me to be a living part of that victory. So the question really becomes, can you trust him? Will you? 